and it was pretty clear to me that there was a gap in the conference market for this uh, information that uh, would prove very valuable. So you were interested in what learning or, or kind of generating this conference just as a like a personal learning as well and then obviously to help other people along as well? Certainly, but I think primarily to be able to to uh, spread the word throughout the, the exploration community uh, about uh, the new discoveries that were being made uh, ultimately not only in Australia but throughout the world. That was Keith Yates. And hopefully this gives you some insight into how the New Gen Gold Conference came about. Find out more about the conference by going to their website, newgengold.com. I'm Ahmad and this is Exploration Radio. This episode of Exploration Radio has been made possible by the support of the Minerals Council of Australia. Find out why there's more to Australian mining and join the Friends of Australian Mining supporter network by visiting minerals.org.au. This episode of the Exploration Radio podcast was also sponsored by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. To learn more about the AIG, the program that it supports, or to become a member, please go to aig.org.au. That's aig.org.au. Much of the mining industry is made up of technical people. Geologists, mining engineers, metallurgists. Most of the critical roles in mining tend to have a technical background. Probably because of this, we always gravitate towards understanding the technical opportunity a project provides. How can we find more ore? Or how can we process it better or cheaper or in bigger quantities? Often, we've been guilty of focusing most, if not all, of our energy and resources on unlocking the geological or engineering or metallurgical potential of a project. This means that often, we've ignored the non-technical opportunity, or importantly, the risk present. In a world where society in general is becoming more environmentally conscious, more aware of corporate social responsibility, and more questioning of the role or value proposition an industry like mining has, It is more common for the non-technical aspects of mining development to ultimately torpedo projects and companies. Every CEO or MD says that their community loves them, that their regulators love them. If that was true, why are there so many projects stalled because of community or environmental concerns? Today, we speak to Tony Rader from Tectonic Metals. Tony is trying to create a company where the non-technical opportunities or risks are just as critical a pillar in the company as identifying the technical opportunities present. They're trying to do the right thing as early as possible. Tony joined us today from his home in British Columbia to talk about what challenges he faces in trying to create such a company. Now let's get on with the show. So Tony, welcome to Exploration Radio. Thank you for having me, Ahmed. So Tony, just to start off with, can you give us a little bit of background about uh, yourself and how you got to where you are right now? Okay, great question, and uh, thank you for that. My interest in the junior mining sector actually started at the age of 21. That was uh, 1995, and I decided to invest in a junior mining company, and it was kind of like uh, love at first sight. I actually made some money, (laughs) and then I got perhaps a little bit overly aggressive and started to actually take it much more seriously and invest a lot more money, you know, as much as a 21-year-old could possibly have. I also decided to borrow 
to invest in junior mining companies because, hey, why not? I, I know what I'm doing. And At 21, that seems like a very sound <laughs> investment strategy. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm going to go to the bank, get a credit line, and I'm going to buy this junior mining company because I'm pretty smart. So 1997, BRIEX happened, and BRIEX taught me just how stupid I was. And I actually wrote off the sector in 1999. I decided that a lot of companies were crooks for, you know, it was a very quick observation. You know, I was 23 years old at that time, 24, in a pile of debt, lost all my money. And I said, I'm not touching mining again. And uh, lo and behold, in 2005, I was introduced to a, a company as an investment opportunity. But I said, this time, I'm going to interview them as much as they're interviewing me. I wanted to take this investment into something more meaningful. And my first uh, job interview actually was with uh, a company called Kamenak Gold Corporation. It was private at the time. They were going to go public. They were looking for an investor relations candidate. And I went through four interviews and a quite an intensive process meeting with the chairman, a director, another employee. I produced a database of like 800 companies that were listed on the TSX venture because our, our game plan was to you know, monetizing these assets through joint ventures, that sort of thing. And they were impressed with me and I was also impressed with them. And then uh, they hired me and uh, off we went. We were did our first capital raise in the public in uh, March, 2006. And the rest is kind of history. I gravitated to vice president of corporate development. Yeah, and right. we acquired the coffee project in 2009, drilled a discovery in 2010, produced a median deferred resource of 3 million ounces in 2013. And then sold it in 2016 for 520 million, raised 165 million through all that process. And not only did I learn a lot about the corporate world, I also learned a lot about geology. I was keen to get into the field and actually did contribute to some of the field programs at, from at, in 2006, right through. Anytime I could get in the field, I put up my hand, I'm going. And yeah, so wow. that's how I got started in the space. And here I am with Tectonic Metals as one of the founders and CEO. So the obvious question is why junior mining companies? Why not some other industry sector? You know, what was it about this industry sector that appealed to you or was it a complete accident? Yeah. How did that come about? You know, as you asked that, you know, emotions are coming up for me and I'm starting to get like goosebumps. And in 2005, when I first got, I just wanted to change from my previous career. And I'd like the whole concept of the challenge of trying to find something. If you know me at all, I like challenges and the harder they are, the more I'm drawn to them. And I thought mining was, or at least the you know, middle discovery is the chances for success are quite slim. The norm is to fail. That really drew me that it's an uphill battle. It's completely hard. And then when I got into the geology side of things, on the corporate side, the company raising capital, but then on the geology side of things, yeah, it's very challenging, but that challenge really uh, invigorated me and the people I worked with the chairman of Kamenak, the CEO of Kamenak, they inspired me and I inspired them. So why junior mining? It's bloody damn hard. It's not for the faint of heart. I learned that through investing that it's not easy and it's really all about the people. And there's so many awesome things about the junior mining space that perhaps a lot of investors don't get to experience and it's the people. And it's not just within the organization. I got to meet like several billionaires in our space, billionaires outside of our space. I mm -hmm. also got to meet on the flip side, the local communities, some of the indigenous people. They fascinated me. I got to meet government officials. I was invited into parliament in the Yukon to sit on an assembly. All these different things coming at me and this exposure at the average Joe that decided to put $10,000 in stock to a portfolio manager that's managing 600 million, decided to make Kamenak his core holding 
to the local indigenous person that actually gave me some memorabilia that they, like that they actually made on site and inviting me back to their communities the local student that we hired and now turned into a environmental manager it's all those different things that you just i don't know if you'd get exposure to that in an office job and so all that combined just really makes junior mining awesome the, the sad thing is a lot of people only hear about the negative stories so they don't really see you know what's behind the curtain and the things that perhaps don't get your share price, you know, up 20%, but actually make a huge difference. And yeah, so it's, it's kind of all those things combined. Gold is my bailiwick, you know, I do fancy copper as well, but you know, the allure of the yellow, the, the allure of the yellow metal. Prior to joining Kamenak, I actually worked for, I, my father and I started a jewelry company. We were distributing high-end jewelry out of Italy. So there was still a gold connection ah, yeah, to yeah, some yeah. extent. Yep. Yeah, so th those are some of the reasons why junior mining. Yeah. Okay. And so if you cast your mind back to when, you know, you're looking for all these companies, what was it about Kamenak that sold you on that company? So first of all, it was in its infancy. So it was private. The CEO was the first hire. I was the second hire. So what I like the concept of just getting on the, well, just being involved at the ground floor. And I also like that it was small enough that you're decisions and your actions can actually have a huge impact to the strategy uh, side of things and the, the development of this company. With two people at the helm, we hired our chief geologist was the third person we hired. And it's so meaningful. Like, you know, we were like, okay, what do you want to do today? Or what do you want to do this week? Or what's the plan for this year? That made it really awesome. And it comes down against the people. I, I, I'm best friends with the CEO. I became best friends with the chief geologist, dear friends with the chairman as well. And so we had this really solid group. And I loved that science, science ruled the shop. It wasn't the CEO at that time. He had a PhD in economic geology. He was not a marketing guy. He wasn't a corporate guy. This was his first role as a CEO. His background is science and geology, and that's what drove us. So I was like, you know what? I believe in this gentleman. I, I, I like his skill set and his background. He, even though I was coming in in a marketing role, I didn't want to work for a marketing person. I wanted to work with actually a mind finder. And there was just good chemistry. And there was like Batman and Robin type of scenario where you know, he had the science and I had this corporate awareness, market awareness. And when the two of us got together, it was magical. We, we did things that the other people in the company and other groups that were sharing the office with us, sorry, other companies that were sharing the office with us, they were like, how the hell are these guys doing this? Just two guys in a PowerPoint. It was great to actually do something meaningful and watch it being reflected in the, the share price appreciation the quality of projects that we were generating, and then the partnerships, Newmont, two other companies, we started forming JVs, and we were all first-timers in this. Even our chief geologist was his first public role. Yeah, so wow. Was awesome. Yeah. Was it hard for you to sell yourself to get that role to some degree because you didn't have a pedigree of doing this type of work, like in the industry or maybe even that role per se? Yeah, I, and that's what kept me away. It's like, I'm never going to get in here. And then one interview went really well. And the gentleman that did the interview, he actually asked me, he goes, okay, what do you think about putting together a comprehensive database of all the junior mining companies on the TSX venture? I'm like, oh, okay. How many companies are there? He goes, I don't know, about 1,200 at that, that time or something. It's like, uh, okay, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. He goes, how, how much time do you need? I go, I don't know. <laughs> I, go, I go, so you want to like commodity focus, region, projects, like build this, this database. I'm like, okay, because and this was the, the rationale for it. So I'm like, I, I don't know. He goes, I'll give you four weeks. How much do you want? Well, give me 15 bucks an hour, four weeks. And I, I did it in two weeks there. You know, I presented it to him. He's like, wow, 
it was this, like you did this really well. So I got paid not a crazy amount for it. And then, so I think they saw perhaps something different in me. I would like to say, like there was a bit of tenacity. I was quite humble to be honest with you. It was maybe it was the price point. They, they actually asked me, what do you want to get paid? You know? And I'm like, you know, that's a loaded question. This is like, and the director actually said, I know, but you have to answer what you want to get paid. And I said, give me, this was in 2005. I like, give me $40,000. And he goes, $40,000. He goes, hell no. I'm like, oh, he goes, we'll give you 48. So I got hired for $48,000 in 2005. So maybe it was, I was just a cheap employee. <laughs> yeah, um, that's <laughs> Man, you, nego- you negotiated hard. Then, I, I, well I, I, I wanted, the group was so respected. I really wanted to get my foot in the door. And so uh, I was willing to do, you know, pretty much anything. Yeah, no, I think the reason why I asked that question is that I think maybe as an industry, sometimes we want people with a pedigree, but I think maybe, you know, what and I'm trying to put myself in the Kamenak guy's shoes at that point, maybe what they saw is your ability to do things and then you can kind of learn along the process. You weren't a finished product, but you could become that during your time with the company. And I think that's something that sometimes stops people from trying to get people from outside of the company to go, well, they don't have a pedigree. But I'm not sure if that's that important or not. I mean, I think you're a good example of the fact that it wasn't that important. Yeah, true story. Another true story here. It is something that that is in the back of my mind to the point where I actually thought about finishing my degree because I'm about a year and a half away. And my actions did the talking so much so that other directors were saying, who's this Tony guy? Because I was like first one in the office, last one to leave. And like I was getting the meetings. I was like building relationships with really high quality people that they never really penetrated before. And that was impressive, but I, I distinctly recall my CEO giving a presentation and he has the PowerPoint slide with the team. And so he had all the board members and then there was, and there was me. And everyone, there was probably between uh, him, me, there was probably about seven or eight names. I was the only one that didn't have credentials after my name. He looked at me and he goes, man, can we put something next to your name? <laughs> I was actually kind of like saddened of like, listen, this is who I am. He goes, he goes, everybody's got something except for you. And he's like, I'm going to see if I can get your PGO status. I go, well, I'm not a PGO. He goes, well, we'll try. Right. So it did also cross his mind that how it would look. But, you know, once you became an officer or vice president of the company, which I did, it alleviated sort of any of that, who's this guy. And then I think nowadays, the pressure to have credentials and that sort of pedigree, I think people are more open to it. Do you think like sometimes we look at it almost like it's like your ticket at the table? It's like, oh, you know, this person has this like tag or badge or whatever it is. And it's like, oh yeah, they can have a seat at the table. Whereas I think sometimes we might miss candidates that might have that skill set, but just don't have that badge essentially. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I was hired when I became a VP, I was hiring investor relations underneath me. They would, this one guy had two degrees. So his boss had zero. He had a, a master's and a CFA. I'm like, holy. And he goes, he goes, so what kind of degree do you have? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> I go, no, but I'm hiring you. <laughs> so I definitely agree with you. And I, I think that's where I would encourage people that don't have degrees that don't shy away from those opportunities. If mm-hmm. you have something special, the degree doesn't define you. Obviously it's, it, it is something of merit. I'm not you know, a big believer in the educational system and, and having degrees when, you know, when appropriate and applied accordingly, but I wouldn't let that be a deal breaker by any stretch. So you obviously were involved with Kamenak. You had success, which is rare. Not many people go down to that whole process. 
Now, when you look back, is there something that stands out about that process? It's really rare to take essentially a private company, which is a blank sheet of paper, take it all the way through building a portfolio, like exercising, commercially exercising that portfolio to a point where you can exit as well and return some wealth to shareholders as well as yourselves. Is there something that stands out of that process that you now in hindsight look at it uh, and go, you know, this is the kind of the lesson that I kind of got out of it? There's so much. We'd be here all day talking about those various lessons. And, you know, one thing it reaffirms me now when I look back is that I remember we started, so I started, you know, November 2005, we took the company public later that month. And in 2006, a few companies, we were peers started making, started making drill discoveries. And I remember my CEO looking, looking at me and he's like, why not us? And I'm like, good question. And I'm like, we're going to do it. And He's like, if you're by my side, I'm like, I am. And, and he goes, I'm by your side. He goes, we're going to do it. And our chief jealous is like, I'm in. And we believed we could do it so much so that we made it a commitment that if we ever made a drill discovery, we would buy each other discovery Rolexes. And so that was in the end of 2006. <laughs> yeah. I know I, I, I'm the CEO, again, a scientist, not really a Rolex kind of guy. We declared it. Well, as long as it's a field worthy version of a Rolex, right? That can kind of take a few hits. <laughs> yeah. That was something we declared. And I remember also in like 08, I think it was 07 or 08, they really on discovery. Like, man, like this is a great discovery, man. We got to do this. Because every time the drill goes into the field, you're like, okay, okay, this could be this, it could be the year. During that process, I actually had a few job offers tempting me to leave Kamenak. They were quite compelling offers. One was working for a billionaire. Another one was inheriting an investment advisor's book. Another one was for another company. And guess what? They all offered me more of a salary. And I sat down with my wife at that time and she was encouraging me to leave. And she was like, this is game changing. Like your salary is going to double this, that, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? I believe we can do it. And she's like, you've been saying that for three, four years. Everybody says that. Of course you believe you can do it. Why would you do it if you didn't believe you could do it? I'm like, I just know we're going to do it. I know we're going to do it. When I look back, things that stand out is the, the belief that you actually can do it. Because if I say this to my kids, if you don't think you can do it, how's that coach going to think that you can make the, the top tier team, right? And, you know, if you don't think you can make a drill discovery, I got to go walk into a portfolio manager's office and say, hey, we're the next best thing since sliced bread and this target we're going to hit on. And, you know, you've got to have conviction, but more so underneath that is belief that you actually can pull it off. And, you know, mother nature is, is very fickle and she humbles you very quickly. So you have to respect, respect her at all times. But I truly believe that I can do this. And in 2011, we made the drill discovery at, 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 sorry, at coffee at 2010. In 2011, we were at a conference with, we decided to take the technical team to a, an investment conference. And one of our chief senior geologists said, well, you'll never do this again. And I just, I was like, my CEO pounded his fist on the table. I'm like, oh, we're going to do it again. Don't worry about that. He's like, no one's ever done it. People the whole career, no one's ever done it. I'm like, okay. So I bet him a thousand dollars in 2011 that I would do it within, I think it was 2012, I believe in 10 years. So you could count our drill discovery at Tectonic as that coming to fruition. But, you know, again, it's just, I just say this because of that conviction. And, and there's, like I said, there's many more lessons when I look back Things like 2008, the subprime fiasco, our market capitalization deteriorated from like 50 million, 60 million. Again, this was pre-coffee acquisition and discovery, all the way down to like six, $10 million. Things just got destroyed and, and you know, still believing in yourself when you're facing adversity and sort of like the economic climate, the situation, those are pretty 
tough times and, and there's other times when you're actually out in the field and learning about the challenges and even with the communities walking into an area where it's there hasn't been good relationships in the past with companies and trying to walk in there and say okay hey um, my name is tony this is what i'm about and not get shunned you know right out the door right yeah i love every experience it's nice that you mentioned the the bad times because I think it's good to have belief, but belief sometimes doesn't butter your toast at all the time. So, and I think there's the reality of the fact that you have to kind of ride out these ups and downs as well of being a publicly listed company that really relies on investor funds to do what you want to do. Yeah, to that point, you know, when I judge a company like I'm investing in, I actually kind of ask them about how do they fare in, in, in the worst of times? Because that's actually what defines you. In a bull market, when gold's $2,000, oh, look what I did. I got yeah, my market yeah. cap up to $50 million. Let's see you do it in 08. Let's see you do it in 2002, the tech crash. Let's see you do it in 97, 98 with the Brex crash. Let's see you do it in 2013 when gold pummeled $400 in one day. Those are trying times that separate the true leaders, the true teams from the rest. And I recall in 2014, we produced a preliminary economic assessment at the Coffee Gold Project, very robust, high IR. We brought in Ross Beattie, Lucas Lundin, two well-known uh, billionaires and mining investors. We brought them in at the same time to invest with us. And guess what? Our share price went down. <laughs> it went up for a little bit and went down. And, and, and this was like, you know, so frustrating. And this is what I, I also mentioned them coming in because it was such a crappy time to invest. Well, at first blush, unless, you know, you have the means and wherewithal to endure that. And that's what Ross and Lucas saw. And they, they invested at a sort of a, a company low in that period of time, given the success that we had at coffee. And then it got even worse. So those good management teams or good companies, they look at adversity as an opportunity. And that's what separates the wheat from the chaff. And I, I would like to say the same thing last year when COVID hit North America in March of 2020, you know, capital dried up, the Dow was crashing every day. And, you know, we brought in a strategic investor, which is one of Alaska's leading native corporations and made them or invited them to be a shareholder in our company. And, and mm -hmm. they actually put up their hand and said, yeah, we're going to do this. So we, we brought in capital from out usual sources to keep the company active. Mm -hmm. And uh, going back to what would you ask a company if you're going to invest in them? You know, it's the adversity that really sets you apart. So what have you done for me lately when things are bad? So we'll dig into a little bit more about Tectonic and how you set it up as a company. One last question about your time at Kamenak. What would you do differently about your time at Kamenak? Is there something that sticks out? I would have bought more shares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that lens of hindsight is something that we could all use. Okay, well, I'm going to contradict myself here where I actually didn't necessarily believe, or maybe I did believe in myself, but in 2010, pre-coffee drilling, I think we had about a 65 cent share price. I was so pumped about the first drill campaign at coffee. I've been waiting for this my whole life. Property's never been drilled before. And we had a, a buyer that wanted uh, a, a larger position in the company and we didn't want to um, do a financing. So he asked us if the management team or anyone else wanted to cross out some stock. And I was like, eesh, you know, like going into drilling, I want to keep my share position. And I was told that the rule of thumb, forget the project, portfolio management is Tony, if you're up, take a bit of money off the table and that way you can ride it out. And there were some geologists too, so you know, you never know if you're going to hit, you know, sometimes it can take 20, 
because they there was a, a discovery to the north of us that they actually yep. really hit the big hole on, on the 22nd hole so mm -hmm. and hamlow for example it took, was an 89 hole so you know it, it doesn't always happen on the first hole so what would i do differently i i kind of felt to pressure and i was like okay i'm going to sell this i did on uh, offload we had some options that were actually expiring later that summer and i was like okay maybe i'll bit of this but that would have been looking back I, I regret selling that and if i would have stuck to my guns and believed that we could pull this off i would have been much more wealthy. The other thing that I learned at Cam, and I, 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 this is a function of me not having that much income, you know, $48,000 a year when I started, yep. I, I wasn't, I wasn't able, I was an employee. I was an employee of the company. I didn't actually have ownership in the company. You know, I saved my pennies and I bought some along the way. 08 helped because we got decimated, but I never really had a massive position because, you know, I also got married. I had young kids. I had three kids fairly quickly. So I had to support them, support a wife. So I didn't have the means, but if I could have actually just had more of a meaningful position in, in that company, obviously, and again, hindsight's twenty twenty. that would have probably been something I would have done differently. I mean, I think it's an interesting question because these events are so rare that there's always this kind of a challenge and you kind of elaborated it really nicely in that the part of this is playing kind of the odds as well that, you know, you know, you have to play so many odds to kind of get it. But the rational part of your brain also tells that, you know, like it's better to have the bird in hand now rather than wish for something in the future. So, yeah, it's always a nice kind of problem. I think that that sits with people. True, true. And it is the, the, the classic kind of startup problem. How far do you want to work for a salary or how far do you want to work for sweat equity and things like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this go around with Tectonic, I'm the, I'm the largest shareholder. You know, I made sure that I, I had a meaningful position, but also that, you know, that I'm fully vested in every which way. So do you think when you start a company like this, do you think it's important to incentivize people with that kind of position in the company so they have a little bit of skin in the game? Yes. Yes, I totally do. And it's not like always the case, but you know, if you're playing a pickup game of basketball or whatever your sport is, as soon as someone says I play five bucks a game, you know, yeah. Yeah. it changes the dynamic. Right. Yeah. And I like to see my team, my employees actually have a vested interest. And that being said though, I can, like, I didn't have a large plan position and sorry, I didn't have a large share position in the company, but I was still all in. Mm -hmm. And hence, I, I was the longest serving employee of that company. So I never had the highest salary. I never had the biggest share position. I yep. bought all my shares. I didn't get any free shares, no sweat equity from me. From, you know, I, I bought my shares. Um, I had options that came down the road. But I'm thinking out loud here, how important is that? I think investors like to see that. You know, if they, if they see uh, a PowerPoint slide or they go on your website and it says, oh, you know, management only owns 4% of the company. And the first question is like, why? Even as a director, I, so I, I do believe that share ownership is important. And some companies such as, you know, Barrick and others, they actually make it mandatory, right? Like a certain amount of that's right. has to, I think that's a great way of doing it. You're, you have to understand though, like junior mining companies are also, we don't have big deep pockets. Some of the employees, like you're starting out, this might be your first gig, right? Everyone has other obligations. Yeah, that's right. It's important. It's not a deal breaker, but I definitely think ownership is important and meaningful because you know... That it's a different level of commitment when an employee or an officer says, you know what, I'm going to invest fifty, hundred thousand dollars or whatever it may be, anything. You just upped your commitment level. 
So let's talk about Tectonic. So this is the company that is now your vehicle that you're leading. So one of the reasons why this interview came across, and you guys have done a really good job of kind of marketing Tectonic to investors and to the broader industry, in that you have taken this kind of, you know, like the ESG or the community side of things and the environmental side of things really, really seriously as, as a key part of your ethos at Tectonic. Why is that the case? Why did you think it needed to be such a significant pillar of Tectonic? Because it is rare to have a junior company that focuses so much on that kind of side of things at its initiation anyways. Mm, I would ask, don't you find it odd that it's not? I think it's massively odd that it isn't. We'll kind of get into this, but I always think that how many times do we hear of companies that have a discovery and do all this great work and then it gets stalled because they didn't appropriately handle the community side of things or they didn't appropriately handle the development side of things, et cetera, et cetera. So I do find it interesting that it's not identified as a risk for junior companies at the start. Yes. Yeah. You know, you, you asked me, why is it such a pillar? And my answer is because it's the right thing to do. It's shocking that we're even having this conversation in many ways. Yes, there's some challenges and, you know, sometimes you have finite capital, finite time, mm -hmm. but for us, it's the right thing to do. And it comes down to respect. And if you go into a community and you're going to do work there and you're not going to go introduce yourself, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And that's because people, it, it, again, generally speaking, but a lot of our, our people prior to me, there was this adversity or fear. They're operating, oh, don't tell them we're here. Don't do this, don't do this, because they might kibosh the project. They, they go in there with the mindset already, it was preconceived bias that they're out to get you. My approach is that we're humans, we're good people, and let's go talk to them. Let's not assume anything. Let's go see if they want us there. And as you pointed out, when you look at the things that derail projects, this ESG component or not engaging early or the environment, it's real. It derails a lot of projects. So why not address it at the beginning prior to an acquisition? Don't let the geolo geological opportunity trump everything else. You know, I don't care about anything else. There's a, there's a deposit there. We've got to go get it. I don't care that there's a protected national forest. We're going to do it. I was pitched by this company to amalgamate with them. And I'm like, okay, let's, yeah, I love your grades. Let's that. I'm like, there's a national park. Well, no, they carved out our section and we're not going to, I go, but there's the actual trail. You look at Google Earth coming through, you actually have to cross your property and there's a protected glacier and there's this, this, this. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to spend, if I acquire this project, if I have a, an hour presentation to commit, convince Ahmed to invest his, his hard-earned money into my, I'm going to spend 20 minutes out of an hour explaining why this is not, doesn't need to be a concern. And then they don't even go talk to the local, they don't do the environmental work or whatever else. And again, not everyone operates like this, but it's kind of ass backwards. And so our approach is keep the risk in the rock. You know, that's something my original CEO of Camnet called me. He goes, this business is risky. Why do we want to add more risk to it? You know, I took that little tidbit. I took it one step further where I'm actually, well, I'm going to go meet the people. Well, let's find something first and then go talk. No, no, let's go talk to them before acquiring to say, what are your thoughts on mining? What are some opportunities where we can collaborate and work together? What do you typically use a lamp for? Someone's like, oh, I don't care. Someone's like, no, we use it for this, this, and this. And so having those conversations that way, you know, if you're, imagine if you're a local citizen in, in a small village or rural area, and all of a sudden there's helicopters flying above you. Like, well, what are these guys doing? There's, you hear noises, whatever, depending how close proximity you are. Then you read a headline or a media article and you're just like, what are these guys, these miners are in our backyard and 
if no one even told me, right? It's really not going to benefit you to not engage early and not talk to them and not enroll and explore opportunities to, to collaborate together. So do you think part of the problem from the company point of view is that they feel that once the information is out there, you know, you can't control it? To me, like, it obviously makes sense to be more transparent because the, the better the educated the person on the other side is, the more meaningful the conversation you can have with them. But do you think part of that is that we got to control information? Because if, if we don't have control of information, it can blow up and then we're a prisoner to that perspective that people take on that. I think you're totally right. I, I think it comes down to, I, mean, I, I don't know who came up with this, but something I say, you make your decisions either based on fear or love. And operating out of fear is never a good thing. And it doesn't usually work, but I think our companies operate, like just tell them when you need to involve because they're worried that it's going to go astray. And then you spend time explaining all like, no, there's not a mine coming in tomorrow. We're just doing early stage exploration and it becomes too monumental. There may be a bit of ignorance or let's kick the can down the road. That's a very common approach. Let's not deal with it now. Let's kick it further down. And then before you know it, you kicked it uh, so far that you're in feasibility stage and you've yet to engage or something, right? It's like, oh my God, we should have started earlier, right? This point that you're making, yeah, like what I found really interesting is that reading through Tectonic, you've kind of been quite open about the fact that you put this, you know, community side of things right up, even to the stage of when you were acquiring projects. If you couldn't see a line aside from a community engagement point of view, then you weren't going to go after certain projects because there was a risk that you guys identified, which I think is really brave of you guys to actually kind of do that in that sense, because like you said, you are mitigating a risk right away in that sense. Mm -hmm. And thank you for those kind words. And again, it's where we don't let the geological opportunity trump or blind us to everything else. Because again, you're investing shareholder money, your money into these projects when you know there's going to be a red flag at this point in time. So people are like, well, I can just, I can make it work for the next five, 10 years and then I'll figure it out. We were like, you know, a collaborative approach is the best approach. And it's, again, it's the right thing to do. I was speaking to a very important person in one of the jurisdictions we operate and we were observing a project that didn't, that is now facing some serious NGO activity, environmental backlash, local community backlash. And this is a significant deposit of economic size and worth. And, you know, I said to them, I don't know the full history of this project, but I wonder if he, this company spoke to them prior to acquiring this project. Did he do an assessment based on the risk reward or the opportunity versus the potential reward? Or they just ignore that. Did they engage with them early on, work collaborative to figure out, listen to them and say, okay, what's important to you. And then that can actually steer your exploration efforts. How about if they made them uh, a shareholder, like the local community, made them a shareholder in the company at the beginning, where they actually had a, an equity participation? You think that when he's like, you know, all these things probably would have changed the scope of where that project is today. Because once you're in that big mess, you can't reverse it. You can to some extent, but you're spending more time unraveling the mess that you created. And maybe the decision is you shouldn't have been there to begin with. As an opportunist and explorationist, and I've looked at some pretty awesome projects in some sen- sensitive areas, and I will not go there and 
It's like turning a blind eye because you're like letting the geological opportunity trump everything. And then you act all surprised, like, oh my gosh, you know, they're, they're so against us. Well, gee, you only have like the world's number one protected area here, or you'd only have this, whether if you're in Africa with the artisanal, oh, you only just went in there and just ripped it all apart. And, and now you want them all to leave and their economic wealth, you're going to take from them, like their means of economic wealth is not gone. And you, everyone's like, oh my gosh, they're, they're so unreasonable, the locals. I'm taking a heavily weighted side here. There is the other side where companies do quality work and they still sometimes things don't like you could do all the right things and still not work for you. But it's that short sightedness versus that long term approach of actually your true goal is to build, to find and build a mine. Then you got to start with the end in mind. And if you're in a protected park or if this community does not like mining, why you're going you're gonna to be battling that like every friggin day why do you want to do that to yourself right so some people don't look with the end of mind they're just like i just i see a near-term opportunity i can get my stock up i can do this we have some geological success that veil is going to get lifted at one certain moment in time and, and it's going to be exposed and and then you get these situations where all the wealth or, or the market capitalization of the company gets dis disseminated and people lose so much money and guess what they go away and they come back and do it again and this is where the investor, I think, needs to step up and be cognizant of these things, demand, what is your ESG? What do you do over here? How do you acquire projects? What's your relationship with the locals? Can I meet the locals? We're backed by one of the leading native corporations in Alaska. You want to meet the CEO, Ahmed, I can set that up for you. You can hear from the horse's mouth. You don't have to take my word for it. This mm -hmm. is what investors need to start doing and demanding from companies. Because, you know, as much as the company says, oh, my gosh, we're so surprised that now we can't move a project forward. Well, the onus is on the investor, too, because you gave them the capital to do that. And That's right. yeah, the, yep. the company could have misled you. But ultimately, you got to take ownership. So this doesn't happen because at the end of the day, we're all in this together in the mining space. And the mining industry does not need another black eye. Yeah, no, no, no. I think particularly from the community side, our history in this is pretty checkered. So at some point we should fix that problem ourselves rather than it be regulated or some other body put some control on us. I mean, so you talk about investors. So let's talk about that. So how often do you get investors coming to you going, the ESG side of things that you're really going to, I fully back it. Or do they just come back and say, yeah, I just want a return, man. However you do it, I really don't care. Yes. So the, the scales are slowly starting to tip in favor of ESG, where that's actually becoming a relevant question. Okay. So do you think that's a change in the relatively recent past that it's changing? I definitely do. I think that term, it's, you know, it's now labeled as ESG, but back in the day, Kamenak, like the, a sophisticated investor, you know, when I say sophisticated, it can mean a lot of things, but let's just go with someone that has perhaps a geological or mining background, and now he's managing capital, whatever. A lot of them will say, okay, well, tell me about the permitting process in the Yukon. Who's the local First Nations? Have you worked with them? Do you speak with them? Do you have your permits? What kind of job opportunities you create for them? I've been asked that, but we're talking about maybe out of every hundred conversations, there's been three or four that actually ask those questions. So not a whole lot, but typically from sometimes from the more astute investors, now it's probably 20%. So you, you have a hundred meetings, you get 20 people asking about yeah, that, wow. but it's still not a whole lot. And the majority is like, yeah, how are you going to get your stock from 50 cents to a dollar? Yeah, that's right. I guess I always think that the perception still is that if you had a million dollars, most investors will still want you to put that money in the ground in another drill hole or whatever, rather than spend that million dollars doing something from the community side of things. 
I totally agree. And that that actually is not only on the investment side, that's also on the company side. I've been in conversations with prominent mining people, not necessarily with the organizations I've worked with. And they've actually said, I can't believe you're spending this much on community engagement, or I can't believe you're spending this much on environmental and, and permitting goals. Because that, that, as, as a project advances closer to the engineering studies, the money starts to shift, the allocation of capital starts to shift towards permitting, community relations, baseline study, environmental studies, environmental monitoring, that can get quite extensive. And a lot of company executives struggle with that as well, because they're still like, well, I can add a drill to find more gold. I'm like, well, if you can't permit that, then what the hell's the point? Yeah, that's right. And so do you think on the management level in junior companies or in mining companies, do you think people have to accept that they have to put some value on the table to mitigate that risk from the community and the permitting side and things like that. They often find that maybe this behavior from the management side is driven because no one wants to leave any value on the table. But here is a proposition where you will have to leave some value on the table because that's the way of engaging the party. Now, that doesn't have to be currency. You know, it doesn't have to be actual money, but it has to be some value that you provide to them early on. If you don't do it now, you're just going to have to do it. You're just, again, kicking the can down the road. So I think if you can establish early on what that value proposition is, and it can come in so many forms. It, like you said, it doesn't have to come in capital. You know, yeah, there's job opportunities. It can be training, mentorship. We've sponsored like a, a local book author to publish their first ever book. You can get creative. Oh. Uh, yeah, actually, and it was we, we had a memo and it was awesome. An artist that was looking to um, create more artwork for sale. So we got them off the ground. We've sponsored like a little mini music festival, large music festival. Like there's ways to get into the community and create value. You just have to find out what's meaningful to them. They might not even want your help or they might not even need help. Right? Like, we're fine the way it is. Okay, great. We, we even talked about preserving the, the native tongue because they're, they're losing a bit of that with the, the younger generation moving away. So like, let's create a book with elder commentary and stories from the elders and have these sessions and we'll be part of it where you can speak with the elders. And, this, and so there's so many ways to create value. You just have to be open to exploring that with the person. Going back to the management team, if you're acquiring a project, it's going to cost you X. Well, we'll acquire it. We'll do the first year, depending what stage is that, but let's assume it's an early stage program. Well, we're not going to do baseline work because we want to know if we have something. Why are we going to collect baseline? We're okay, so we put that on a shelf and we make a drill discovery. Then we got to backtrack because you got to get weather information, baseline water studies, to make sure you, you know, all that sort of So there is a, a sweet spot when you should do, when you're supposed to do that. And then you don't, you don't have to backdate that. And then also with the community involvement, you know, when do you get them involved, right? And so I don't see it as an issue or I see it as an opportunity to start early and say, okay, this is what we're going to do this year. We want to work where it's obviously, if it's your territory, your traditional territory, we were going to be in the area. What are your thoughts on this? Are you open to mind? Make it all part of the acquisition process. And then there's a constant dialogue on, okay, let's work together. If I need, you know, whatever type of workforce I need, or I need supplies, groceries, an expediter. We actually even hired a couple of Métis to, to actually drive the boats. We were doing lake sediment sampling in, in Manitoba one. So we like, okay, let's hire local. Let's hire local. Let's see if anybody wants to work here. You're going to need that workforce anyway, so take the better route and hire local, right? Mm -hmm. So one other question I have around the investor side is, do you think that you kind of have two groups of investors if you go down this path where you have a focus on sharing value with the community? Let's take Tectonic, your company, for example, where you have one of the largest community kind of landholders in Alaska as part of your share registry. 
So do you think that there is this duality of investors where you have kind of global investors who have a completely different metric and then you have local stakeholders or local shareholders that have a completely different metric? Do you think that that's something that's becoming more prominent on your registry? And does that pose a problem or is that an opportunity? How do you look at that? Stefan, if I'm not addressing your question correctly, mm-hmm. but my answer is it's always been a diverse demographic. So you have the guy or the person, I should say, that just is strictly a junior mining junkie as far as investing and, you know, wants to stock go from here. You have the more sophisticated person that's taken up, you know, say it's five-year money, it's a portfolio of 10-year money. So he's taking more of a long-term approach. You have sometimes like the Doyon entity, like what do they want to support? Well, these guys do great local, this is what the CEO would say, like they do great local work. We believe in them. They do great science. They're just a right company that matches our culture and our core values. So let's back these people. You get the whole swath or the whole mix of investors, even the the local Alaskan broker, for example, like, hey, I'm an investment advisor here. I want to support locally. And you're working, yep. you know, just outside of Fairbanks. So I saw your name in, in the newspaper, blah, blah. And like, I love supporting companies that support because I believe in mine. I'm like, okay, great. So you get the full mixed bag. And again, that's one of the best things about this industry is that, you know, everyone's got a different objective and different demographic, different background. There's some people that know absolutely nothing about mining, but they believe it, they're, they're entrepreneurs or they're business minded. And they're like, you know what, I'm going to back you because I, I just, I like the way you communicate. I like your story and uh, I believe in you. I'm like, okay, great. That's awesome. Thank you for that vote of confidence. They just invest based on people without having any mining background. And some of them actually do quite well, I would say, because, you know, ultimately it is the people that, that drives the, the value, right? Yeah, that's right. You kind of answered the question because what I think is now happening is as the local stakeholders, the local shareholders become more important, you know, what the global kind of investor base, and I know that it is a heterogeneous kind of blob, but I'm kind of painting him in one light. But in my head, there will probably be some conflict where what the global investor base wants may not necessarily be exactly what the local stakeholder base once yeah an institutional bank investing from scandinavia in a company would they have the same priorities as someone that's part of doyon as an investor they may not be the case i'm always interested in the perception of management where they go well yeah you know what actually the spectrum of people now we are seeing is getting wider and wider yeah to that point you're, you're everyone has a different objective and so there, there's a couple of funds that want to see esg reporting now that as part of their investment criteria, you have to produce with your quarterly financials, you have to have your the CSG reporting. There are some investors and we had a, an outreach, call it maybe a bit of a backlash from one investor because we were focusing too much on ESG. And he's like, you're a mining company. You know, we, we're taking a stance on some social issues, racism and discrimination to be specific, beefing up our policies, creating some scholarships as well to support a black student and an indigenous student wanting to pursue an earth sciences career. We wanted to give back to the community. And and he just said, you know what, your job is to find a mine. And the fact that you're spending your time and capital here, he goes, I'm sitting, and and this was in an email. He goes, I'm hitting the sell button as we speak. And it's like all caps. And, you know, we probably lost him as a shareholder. And so this is where it's, it's tough as a company too, because you, you can't be everything to everybody. And so it's like the tail wagging the dog, if I can use that analogy. I have to ultimately do what I think is best for the company. That's the job of the CEO. But if I listen to everybody, you know, you're just going to go in circle because everyone's got a different approach. And that's totally cool and fine. And you should listen to your shareholders. And I do. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with the CEO, with the company itself on how to direct and create value. 
I completely agree. I think my view on this is that, and we kind of shared this, you know, we did an interview with John Goodman that came on our episode. And, you know, he made this point, which I quite love, is that every time you hear a mining company CEO stand up and talk about some project, you know, they go, well, the community loves us. Yeah, it's like, well, if the community loves mining, then how come there's so many projects that are stalled because of community reasons? Clearly, we're overlooking some problem here if we keep thinking that everyone loves us and not actually addressing that problem at some point. Yeah, no, it's uh, a lot of people are, are quick to say that. And keep in mind, you could do all the right things, engage early, and it could still backfire, right? We, we can't control the future, right? So we can only control the present and what we do. So this is a great quote, actually. I actually was speaking with a, this was just this week, with a First Nation chief in Alaska. And the bottom of her email said, you know, again, being Indigenous, I, I saw this quote from Buddha and it said, what we do today matters the most. And if I got that right, what we do today is what matters the most. And I love that. And I actually told her I love that, you know, just because you do this box ticking exercise or you just do it because, you know, in art, it's not really, it's a box ticking exercise, yes, to some extent, but it's also the right, like I said, the right thing to do. And it blows up. And, you know, it's just like, well, I can't control what happens in two, three, four years time, but I can control is my actions today. And this is the approach I'm, I'm taking. So. Mm-hmm. that's how I want to live and that's how I want to run my company. One thing that I'm interested in is what have you learned from kind of engaging local communities that you probably didn't know of before? Like, I think a lot of people kind of have this tick box exercise, but my perception is that I don't think it's going to be this tick box exercise. I think you have to play the field first. You kind of have to try to work on that relationship before you try to figure out how that works. Is that something you found as well? Is that it has to be infinitely kind of malleable depending on who you're dealing with and how you're dealing with them? I think, you know, take the script and rip it apart. You have to go in there with no preconceived notions. Trust me, like I'm not perfect. I've gone in with these preconceived biases because you hear something about the local community or whatever. And like, oh my God, they're tough to deal with. They're tough to deal with. They're this, 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 or they're anti-mining. So you got to take all that, just throw it out the window. And, and even all your checklists, your playbooks, sometimes you just got to throw it out the window. And if you start at the beginning, there's not a whole lot to lose. You know, if you have a hundred million dollar invested in a project and you got 3 million ounces or whatever it may be. And now you're like, shit, we got to make this work. Like your, your companies, like everything's riding on making it work. And I don't necessarily think it's a box ticking exercise because what it is, is you actually have to sit down with the community and actually create the boxes that need to be ticked. You have to sit down with the chief and say, okay, what, what are the boxes that need to be ticked here? What's going on? And sometimes they don't, they don't know nothing about mining. And so they're going to judge you as a person. And what I love about indigenous people is that the more quiet they are, that's like the, the elders, they're the quietest in the room. And they do a lot of listening and they're so wise and profound. And you're walking into someone's neighborhood or someone's community. Just like if I were to walk into your house, you take your shoes off at the door. You don't come in with your dirty shoes. So you got to show respect. You're going into someone else's community. You don't own that land. They were here mm-hmm. before you. So it starts with respect. And they that those little gestures will get appreciated. And then you just talk to them one-on-one and, and then develop what those boxes are that need to be ticked. So that's kind of my approach with the, with the whole thing. The playbooks kind of work, but at the same time, they, they, they don't work. And I think the more authentic you are, especially with the local community, they, they could smell <laughs> trouble or smell someone that's inauthentic pretty quickly. 
I listened to the interview that you and Aaron did, who's, uh, I think, from Doyon for PDAC. And uh, he had this comment, which I absolutely love. He just said that when you're trying to do anything with community, you know, like engagement, he's like, you just have to be brave. He's like, you're going to get things wrong and you're going to get some things right. And sometimes we'll get things wrong and, you know, and hopefully we'll get things right. And I really like that kind of perspective that they are looking for people to be brave, to come and put themselves out there. Yeah, and his comment was exactly that. He's like, don't worry about making mistakes because we're going to make them together and that's going to be better than you just making them kind of by yourself. I recall that. And I think that's so profound. It's such a, at first blush, it's a simple message, mm-hmm. but it's so, it's so profound because I've said something similar in the community where it's like, you know, we might not get it right, but we're going to be accountable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't expect a free handout. What I would love is the opportunity for me to prove what we can do and to follow, that we're going to follow through on our word, we're going to execute. And when we make mistakes, we'll clean it up. We'll make it right. That's just being human. And I love that perspective because I think in the world we live in now, where we try to mitigate all risk possible for infinity, I think it's a good reminder to the fact that some things are uncontrollable forever yeah like they're controllable for a short period of time or they might be controllable for a long period of time but in the end you can't control every risk that's attached to things like this yeah if you take that even apply to the investment side there's a mm-hmm. lot of pressure like everyone thinks the not sorry i shouldn't say everyone but some people they see a ceo they're like oh it's it's a walk in the park you get paid the big bucks or blah 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 man it, it ain't an easy job and I can't control Mother Nature. I can't control COVID. I can't control the public markets. The Dow goes up. The Dow goes down. Gold goes up. And this goes down. Someone drops a bomb over here. Someone drops a bomb. There's so many factors that impact your share price performance or how they, you know, so you got to really just focus on what you can control. And what I hate as an investor and also as when I watch my peers is when they don't own, when they screwed up or, you know what, we drilled here. It wasn't here. They try to put lipstick on it, manufacture it. You get these news releases that talk about, we hit gold mineralization, blah, blah, blah. And it's like 0.002 PPM or just like basically a, a hint of gold. And they make it sound like, oh, it's a brand new discovery, but we missed. Or they, they twist and manipulate the words and instead of just owning it. And I, I think you own it, you get closure, you create space. Now you create and you move forward. So I think those words of wisdom that the CEO of Doyle and Aaron said can also be applied to running a company and just to owning your, your, your results. They're not all going to be stellar. I mean, if you have that opinion, Tony, you're going to be a prior in this industry because that's kind of counter to what everyone seems to be doing. It is. I, I mean, I don't know. There is a couple of companies and um, they have actually written a couple of news releases where drilling did not go as planned or did not turn out the results as planned. And they just laid it out. Yes, their share price got punished because of it. But I really admire the CEO and the company for doing that and just saying it how it is. And he actually, in his quote, he says, yes, these results are disappointing. So there are other people like me. And I, I appreciate that versus trying to pull the wool over my eyes and say it was this and this and this, where I'm just like, you friggin' missed. You you suck. Like, you did not hit. You know, call a spade a spade. I guess in that vein, this is more of a personal question. Do you find that people come to you and just say, your strategy is wrong, man. You can't be this transparent to people because you're just going to get shellacked on a day-to-day basis. Do you personally find that people come to you and say, you got it all wrong? Mm, I haven't had that happen at Tectonic. I have had that happen at uh, Camac in, in, in certain regards in how we did some of our work or, or some of our marketing. 
Actually, no, I've had that in Tectonic as far as our market, but no, no, but not, not to the full extent, like, you know, being transparent has worked against you. A lot of people, when they're pissed off, they hit the sell button, they go away. They might call and rant. Usually they rant when they own shares, because once you sell, it's kind of like history, you move on, right? So if anybody rants, that means they care. You know, that's yep. the way you got to look at it, because you wouldn't rant about something you didn't own. Yeah, no, 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 that's why. I guess I'm quite interested in this fact because the perception seems to be that in kind of the junior market is that you should never put out any information unless it's positive. You should only put out positive information. We've kind of talked about this topic a few times on our show. And I just think that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we wanted investors to be more educated? So wouldn't we put out more reasonable information or more transparent information? Wouldn't that be a good thing? And wouldn't that make our investor base more educated about us so it doesn't feel like this kind of we're like you know trying to hose as much money out of them as we can and do whatever we want with it and then move on yeah have you ever i'm sure you have but you go to a mineral conference and you know everyone's pick your conference of choice but you know every every company's got like a presentation 15 minutes there's like one every 15 minutes right i dare you or if you haven't already sit through 15 of those 10 of those. everyone's going to tell you they got the next biggest gold mine we're an elephant country we're this and it's just the same thing over and over and over again everybody's got the best project it's just like well well obviously this isn't going to translate to to if you have 15 presentation 15 mines so clearly some of you don't the reality is probably zero zero of you do <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, right. based on statistically speaking. So it's the same playbook over and over again. But th this is as much as we look at the companies that they need to be more transparent and realistic with their language, so on and so forth. The investor needs to take the accountability for this as well, because they're funding this crap. They're also they're perpetrating, they're perpetrating, perpetuating the, the problem as well. And it's on both sides. If companies didn't get money, in the traditional ways of promoting or marketing, they would be forced to change their ways. And also investors, they come back and sometimes they give them more capital, right? So it's not an easy gig. And sometimes you truly believe that the results, okay, they weren't exceptional, but they had this. So they actually truly believe what they're saying. And sometimes there's merit, okay, we didn't hit gold, but there's intense alteration suggesting that there could be that we did it this way, we did it that way. So you got to kind of pick and choose, but there are clear standouts that completely manipulate the, the truth to put on a, uh, to save face. And that's just not welcomed at all. And these companies and these people come back again, they're back at it again with a different, that's view, right. a different company and it, and they still get funding. And this is what blows my mind is like, how are these guys getting funding? They're back at it again with the exact same story. If you wait long enough, the investors typically forget. And then they come back with a new vehicle and repackage it into something else or the project gets repackaged. Right? So. I don't think we're ever going to shake that. That's why I, I think it's up to the investor to be more discriminating and mm -hmm. rigorous with their investments and their capital. I completely agree. I think as an investment community, we could drive the incentives for management to change. Maybe like thinking out loud, the issue really is that, you know, kind of retail investors may not have the depth of knowledge to really understand when someone is you know telling a good story or telling a bad story they may not be able to tell companies abc apart and so to them they all look the same but yeah i completely agree with you i think as a as an industry or i kind of think about it if you're a management team surely you have a competitive advantage in kind of behaving differently you know if you engage with investors in a different way surely you would have a competitive advantage in that sense. And I think that's the model you guys are trying to employ at Tectonic. So I think it's a great idea to see how that works. 
We definitely do. And, and that's like, and be yourself, be authentic, do, do it the right way. What I will also add to that though, is that when these other companies, their share prices are going up, our, some of our shareholders will be like, well, how come your stock's not up? How come you're not doing this? And like, like what newsletter guide do you have? You got to get some newsletter writers in your story. And I'm like, okay. And like, sometimes paying them is good. I'm like, cause we, we have a policy. We don't pay for editorial. I'm not paying a newsletter guide write me. That do you know what independent research coverage is? You, you forgot about the word independent. Um, it's not it's not paid research coverage. Know, it is and this, paid, it should and be. this concept of like sponsored content now of our companies is just prolific. It's just completely out of touch. I think it is. But this is where I'm saying like the investors they're like they're forgetting the morals and ethics. Just get me your share price up because these companies are doing it. They have. I've been told this, this is verbatim, they have crappier projects than you, but their share price has gone up 30, 40%. Yours is down and you say you're doing all the right things. So I don't know who to believe. You need to do this, this, and this, right? And I'm just like, you know, I'm not going to sell my devil, my, sorry, I'm not going to sell my soul to the devil and go against my morals and ethics just to get my share price up. There's a way to do it. And we believe that it's through proper science and proper ethics. And some people just forego that just to get a higher share price. And this, this is challenging at times. If that's your ethos, I think it's really refreshing, Tony. If more people behave that way, maybe we would have a little bit more transparency. I mean, I kind of take the view that most public reporting by companies, you can't really use it because most people are just trying to kind of game the system in some way. Yeah, like I always ask the question, like how many hostile takeovers do we see in mining? It's pretty rare or it's basically zero now. That tells you something about the level of public reporting done by most companies. If you're ever trying to do a project acquisition you know you sign a ca and you go through their data to try to build your own opinion on stuff like this as an industry we probably have a problem in the way that we're kind of putting out information particularly to investors yeah it's yeah i don't know what to say. <laughs> <We should laughs> leave it at that. yeah i think i mean i think it's good i think you know the, the strategy that you guys are employing i think it's great and it's refreshing to hear as well for whatever knocks you take for it i think hopefully you keep continue doing it i will I'll so going back to the, the quality of the company, and that's what your board is there, right? So who do you align yourself with? You know, if you align yourselves with these questionable characters, then you're going to feel the exact same pressure from the board. Hey, pay this newsletter. Who guy? Who cares? Do this, do this. But that, that's where the, the quality of your board and your senior advisory team. And I will say, you know, our board, I, I obviously have a huge amount of respect for them professionally and also personally. And also a lot of our key shareholders, RCF, uh, Dolion, for example, these companies hold us to pretty high standards here. And that's good because I, I choose to align ourselves with these people and they're going to hold me accountable. So even if Tony starts to sway just a little bit, they're going to rein me in. Luckily that hasn't, ha hasn't happened because I don't think the be all end all is to get your share price from 20 cents to 30 cents. Those are short-term gains. At the end of the day, you need the goods to back it up. You can play the part, look the part, but at the end of the day, to again, that short-term game, sorry, that short-term play or the long-term play, pick which one you want to, you want to go for and long-term typically will yield better results. And obviously you'll maintain your integrity and you can come back into the space as we have holding your head up high because you did something meaningful with the investors, with the communities, with the local first nations, you're respected and wanted to come back. Well said, I think if you all kind of live by that mantra, I think we'll probably be a better industry in that sense. So Tony Rader, we are close to the end of our interview, so I don't want to take too much of your time. So we end our interview with two questions, usually at the end. So the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? Something that we need to get rid of? 
I think I have a pretty good idea what you're going to say for this. Yeah, I, I, which one do I pick? I think what needs to die in mining is the inauthenticity that can be at times rampant. And when I say inauthenticity, I mean, you know, we talked about paid coverage, paid newsletter coverage, and then telling, you know, that the company's this, 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 or the inauthenticity, how you report your results, pretending or making it look better when it actually isn't. The inauthenticity, how you approach communities with this bias or inauthentic view on how, how it's going to look. You know, at the end of the day, I do tell communities, listen, we're not building a playground. It's a hole in the ground. I can't hide that. And then I don't say that. Don't say that. Don't say that. This, this, this. No, this is what it is. But there's a place for metals. It's part of our lives. There's a need for it. And it can be done responsibly and ethically. And it can also be done in harmony with the environment to, to a certain extent. And if there's an opportunity with the locals to, to benefit that or play a role in that, it's, it comes down to, again, you want to be part of this. There's risks associated with everything. So you have to be comfortable with those risks. So that's kind of, I think, you know, the inauthenticity, marketing, First Nations, local community engage, all those things I've said, I think what needs to die in our space. Well said. So conversely, what is something that you think we need to maintain in mining at all costs? Something that's fundamental to our DNA and we shouldn't forget? Well, I'm going to go with what first came into my mind, and that's integrity. I think, you know, integrity spills over into accountability for when you miss on a drill, accountability when you have an oil or gas spill on your property, integrity to when you walk into an investment meeting and you say, this is truly independent research coverage, I didn't pay for that, or this is the transparency on you know our salaries or options or how we're compensated or where we bought it. I would love to see more integrity, you know, maintained and also improved in our space because that's the foundation for just being a better human. Excellent. That is an excellent point to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tony. This was great. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. This episode of Exploration Radio was produced by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford, edited by Sean Jeffrey, and recorded remotely on 16th April 2021. This episode was sponsored by the One to One Group and The Assay. Find out more about them on our website. If you like this podcast, then consider becoming a sponsor to help us continue producing more of this content. You can email us on info at expressionradio.com or check out our website, expressionradio.com. You can also reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, let's keep exploring.